0: Text is found in Matthew twenty, John. 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 this testing you.
1: <laughs> you are paying attention. It's a good thing, Henry. John twenty. So far, so good. Twenty six, twenty nine. There you go. I'm, my apologies.
0: Okay. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here. Look at my hands, and reach your hand
1: here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving. But believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus
0: said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed me. I have blessing to this word.
1: Happy Sabbath. That was a good test. Matthew or John.
0: <laughs>
1: I assure you it's John. Um, we'll be reading John chapter 20, or at least a part of it today, so I hope you all have your Bibles with you. Um, and uh, let's pray before we begin. Father, we, we come to you today and on a Sabbath day and, in hopes of seeing you and touching you, perceiving your presence with us, even though we know that you have risen and even though we know that your presence is always with us, um, Lord, we ask for a special blessing of faith and belief on this morning. Uh, We just ask that your Holy Spirit be with us um, as he always is but that uh, we may be aware of your spirit, that you may uh, open our eyes and our minds as we read and think about you and we talk about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So John chapter 20. I titled the sermon A Week Later. Um, The version that was up there says eight days later or about a week later. And it is about a week later after Easter or resurrection. Um, so I thought, you know, this is this is appropriate. Right. Last Sabbath, we had a, a pastor talk about, you know, what was it? What happens on Monday? You know, and so, you know, we're, we're here a week later. Right. And it's funny that John specifically in his story of Jesus makes it a point to tell us what's happening one week after uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, out of, all, out of all of Jesus' disciples, out of all 12, Judas Iscariot has the absolute worst reputation anyone could ever imagine, right? But Thomas kind of comes in second <laughs> on that list. Thomas has a very minor role in the gospel. He only has a few lines Like, if I were to give this out to you as a play and gave you each a role, if you were Thomas, you would only have about two sentences in the entire story of the gospel in John. Um, So he kind of seems like a minor character, and he's always kind of in the background. And he always gets a bad reputation. But I want us to take a closer look at Thomas because I think that maybe... Maybe we're being unfair to him in some ways uh, by giving him such a bad such a bad rap. Um, what I want you to do today: we, we're often asked to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Like when we read the story, we're asked to put ourselves in Peter's shoes, or put ourselves in in in, in John's shoes, or put ourselves in Mary Magdalene's shoes, or put ourselves in Martha's shoes, but. I want to actually present this idea to you. That Thomas is actually, thanks Esther, (laughs) that Thomas is actually putting himself in our shoes. Uh, But before we get ahead of ourselves, I'm going to turn to John chapter twenty, verse starting in verse nineteen. John says. When it was evening on that day, he's talking about Resurrection Day, right after Mary Magdalene had come and and told them that she had seen Jesus and Jesus had sent her to them to tell them what what, what had happened, that he was alive. Um, On that first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus says to them one more time. Again, he repeats it. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, just picture this, right? John tells his disciples were locked in together for a whole week, afraid that they were going to be found or accused of being with Jesus. Fear had gripped them in such a way that even though Mary Magdalene had come in, probably in tears of joy, telling them about how she encountered Jesus outside the tomb, that these disciples, they they, they still remained afraid and they still locked the doors and they still just sat together and didn't know what to do. It marks a huge, huge shift in the lives of these disciples. What was normal and usual, it was no more. And it could be no more. The life that they once knew could now never be again. Before there can be a new normal, there is always a crisis. And in that middle, in the middle of that That dark moment in the middle of that crisis, in that middle of not knowing what to do and being overtaken by fear. Suddenly, Jesus shows up in the room. John says, even though the doors were locked, Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. In their darkest moment, in their most desperate moment, Jesus arrives. But notice how he doesn't say, do not fear. Instead, he says, peace be with you. He doesn't call attention to what they're currently experiencing in that moment, that they're afraid, that they're scared. He doesn't say, don't fear. Like when they say, you know, don't think about like the purple elephant, and then you think about the purple elephant. But like, instead, he, he, he directs their attention to a, to a, in a different direction. He says, Peace be with you. He's not looking at the source of their fear. He doesn't arrive to necessarily clear the way. He arrives and calls attention to his peace. But soon he lets them in on the second part, right? Jesus repeats. Twice he says it, peace be with you, but the second time he follows it with a a bold statement. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus is sending him out as the Father has sent him. To do what? To do what exactly? Right? Right? See, disciples, the whole point of them following Jesus, the whole point of them doing all the things that Jesus had asked them to do, even when they didn't make sense, uh, the whole point of like being challenged into somewhere outside of their comfort zones was so that they would become like Jesus and that they could do the things that Jesus was doing. And I think I said this before, like the purpose of the rabbi, Disciple relationship was so that the disciples could themselves become teachers, and they could do the things that the rabbi was doing. That's that's the whole point of learning. In Matthew, Jesus says, right after he resurrects, uh, Matthew twenty-eight. It's the Great Commission. He says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them." to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He asks them to make disciples. He asks them to teach others what he taught them. He didn't didn't say go out and make converts. He said make disciples disciples. Students who learn how to do what the teacher says or does. So in sending them out, Jesus is saying that they are now to teach people to do what Jesus taught them. Everything Jesus had taught them about loving one another, about, about remaining in Christ, about the internal matters of the heart that must be redeemed, uh, about taking on Christ's yoke, and his light burden about loving their enemies. All of those things they were to pass on to the new disciples. So Jesus wants them to go out and do what he did. But doesn't Jesus see how scared they are, right? Doesn't he see that they're locked away, that they are overcome by this fear and he now wants to, to, to tell them to, to go out there after what just happened to him. Like they just, it's been a week since they saw him or they, they heard of, of what happened or they saw him get arrested and they, and they knew that he had died. They knew the way that he died. It's a week later and, and Jesus has, he's bold enough to tell them, okay, now, now it's your turn. <laughs> now you go. Right. Here's open the door and push him out, essentially. Right. Like, go. It's not very comforting. It's not the Jesus that I would want to <laughs> encounter at that moment. He's not there to say, it's OK, guys, like, you know, I know that happened, but now I'm here and everything is going to be fine. That's that's not what he's doing. He's saying, I'm here. It's your turn. And that's kind of a shock to the system, right? But as he tells them this thing, John says that Jesus breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke tells us in the book of Acts of when the Holy Spirit arrives in power at Pentecost. But John says it happened on Resurrection Day when Jesus appears to them, right? Jesus breathes his spirit into his disciples. They would need this spirit. They would need the comforter, the the guide, the holy presence of God with them to do what Jesus did. But Thomas, right? That's where it comes in. But Thomas, who was called the twin, because I'm assuming he has a twin, he's one of the twelve, but he wasn't there when Jesus came. So the other disciples have to tell him, they say, we have seen the Lord, but he, but Thomas said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the marks uh, of the nails uh, on my hand in his side, I will not believe. Um, (laughs) Ellen White says of Thomas that Thomas had been most unreasonable in dictating the conditions of his faith. But Jesus, by his generous love and consideration, broke down all barriers when he asked him to touch his body, the scars in his hands and his side. The question is, was Thomas being unreasonable, really? I think I, I'd like to disagree with that. I don't think Thomas was being unreasonable in my perspective. I think he was being just as reasonable as any of the other disciples were. Jesus had shown up, and it was only after they all saw his hands in his side that they believed. And then they celebrated it. Before that, they all doubted Mary. Matthew tells us that Mary had come and told them about it, and they were all like, I don't, I don't know. It's just it's just one of you, and there's like what, eleven of us. You know, can we really trust you? You were probably like overwhelmed with emotions, you were crying. Can we really trust the witness of a woman? Um, all of these things are happening in this story. Interesting that Jesus chooses Mary to be the first person to tell the disciples the good news, right? (laughs) Don't marry. Right. So they all doubt it. They're all on the same boat. I think we have a lot to learn about the way that Jesus approaches Thomas's doubt, right? Because I think in our society, we're overflowing with doubt and cynicism about Jesus and those, quote, Pesky Christians. Our initial reaction to people who question the existence of God or Jesus is to, normally we are offended by it. But this isn't what Jesus does. He doesn't argue with them. Right? When Jesus approaches Thomas, we see that the proof is in the body. Jesus does not argue. He simply shows up. When Jesus says to his disciples, As the Father has sent me, I now send you, it's as if he's saying, There's only one of me. I can't be everywhere. I can't prove myself to everyone in the world. But I send you out now. You are the proof. When those who doubt ask for proof, don't be offended, but rather if they don't believe, Provide them with the love, the healing, the food that Jesus gives you because the proof is the body. A friend said last night, I was talking to him about this story. He says, the older I get, the more I realize that I need to question myself more than I question God. We often look at things that are going on around the world and we think, God, if you're so good, why is this happening? Or we look at our own lives and the things that maybe we have to deal with, and we're like, well, God, if you're really taking care of me, why is this happening? Or, you know, there's so, there's so much hunger or poverty in the world. Why, God? Why, why are you allowing these, to hap- these things to happen? And we fall into doubt of whether or not God even exists. But he says, as I get older, I've learned to question myself more. Because... If I really think about it, if I ask the question, <laughs> what if the, the question was reversed, right? What if God asked me, all of this is happening around you, what are you doing about it? If there's hunger and poverty and, and, and people need uh, comfort and they need, they need people around them, why are you not doing something about that? Why are you not working for peace, or for justice, or for truth, or for wisdom, or for love? Why are you not moving? Right? We give Thomas such a bad reputation for not believing that Jesus had risen from the grave. But we forget that the disciples didn't just tell him that Jesus had risen from the grave. They also told him that they were to go out. And do what Jesus had been doing. That, that as the Father has sent Jesus to them, that they were, they were now being sent out. And, and so it's like a double doubt. Okay, maybe, maybe Jesus did, did resurrect, right? He had some time to think about this. He had about a week. What if Jesus really did resurrect? Everybody's telling me this. Okay, maybe. But the second part, uh, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? I don't know if that's what what he really meant. And I think we often think of Thomas and we think of other people and not ourselves. But I want you to to, to think of yourself because I think that often we doubt whether Jesus truly is telling us, go and do the things that I did. We often fall into doubt and we doubt ourselves and we think, did God really mean for me to go out and do something good in the world? Did God really mean, like, this is, this is the thing that we're supposed to do as Christians? Did God really mean that, that what he wants me to do is go out and, and, and feed the hungry or, or, or care for those who are suffering or, 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 or be there for somebody else? That, did, did he really mean those things? Because I think that the body of Christ today is very convinced that Jesus rose from the grave, right? It's no longer whether or not Jesus is actually alive or he rose from the grave. I think the question now is whether or not the body of Christ still lies unconscious of the world. A week later, where are you? A week later, are you still huddled together and not going outside the boundaries of what you know as safe? Right? Um, I think that's, that's what I doubt sometimes. When, I'm out, when, I, when I feel that conviction, when I feel like the Spirit telling me, like, okay, go and, and do this one thing. Right? I don't feel I don't feel doubt when someone asks me, okay, Henry, can you preach the next Sabbath? I don't feel a doubt or teaching or going to church. I feel doubt when someone says, when someone, the Spirit says, "Um, have have you checked on your neighbor? Like, do you think they're doing okay? I feel doubt when, you know, maybe I think my coworker is, dealing with something difficult, and it's like, should I really, like, you know, come alongside them? Those are the moments when I doubt. And yet, that's what Jesus is saying that we should be doing. Um, So I think, Pastor Cho, you put up the cross, and I just saw you change that to white today. And I noticed there's wheat down there, or what's supposed to represent wheat. So let me me grab it real quick. So Jesus, in the book of John, says, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will only remain a single grain of wheat. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it will produce many. So I want you to see this. Jesus was just one. One body that convinces Thomas who doubts, and when he sees him, He sees Jesus' body and he sees the scars and he touches them. And Thomas then believes because, as a human being, he needs and wants proof. And there are many people in the world today who would love to believe, but they say there is no proof of your Jesus. And again, the proof is in the body. But Jesus is no longer here because he knew it's just one of me. But if I fall and die, there's many of you. And so the call to be Christian isn't necessarily to believe a certain way. There are many Christians in the world and we have slightly different beliefs, even in the Adventist church. But that's not the point. Jesus is saying, go and do what I taught you to do. And go and teach others what I taught you. And do not doubt, but believe, for I am with you until the end of the age. Amen. And so when Jesus died, we think of it, died, rose again, went to heaven. We think of it as a bad thing because we no longer get to experience Jesus. We don't longer get to hear him or see him in our lives and yet it's that, that happening causes, causes us to truly live, right? The song, uh, What a Wonderful Cross, uh, is it, uh, it bids me come and die, that I may truly live. And so each one of us is like this wheat, and each one of us will have scars of our own that have been healed by God himself. And it is these scars in the body that prove to the world that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Amen. So you and I are part of this body, this body of Christ. And we think of it, sometimes we're not perfect. Sometimes we, we have, there's scars here. There's holes here. Sometimes we'll look at the story and we say, there's, there's holes here. The story is there's stuff missing, but it is is those wounds and it is those scars that you carry that are healed or that are healing, that that you've come to Christ to to, to receive healing and redemption. It is those very things that convince people that Jesus actually truly was raised from the grave. It is when we grow and produce fruit that we do what Jesus asked us to do. And so today I, I, I know that well this last week I just keep thinking to myself like do I actually truly believe that Jesus was raised in the grave? Like is that like is that not just you know something I memorized in church, but like do I actually truly believe it? And and it's it's something that challenges our faith. And yet Jesus says, come, <laughs> touch, see, look, feel. Now go and do what I asked you to do. And each one of us has that calling on our lives. Each of us doubts for different reasons. But don't forget that the proof is the body. The proof has always been the body.
0: Okay. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing our closing hymn.
1: accept the gift of your wonderful love amen. and we ask that it works to build in us the courageous spirit that you have desired to find within each of us that we may do as you ask in Jesus name amen amen, amen.